Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... Bashal Gaywali has a new paper out this week, and he's here to unveil his findings. You won't want to miss that discussion. And I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Justine Ryu. She's a classical hematology and oncology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, and she's going to talk about a new paper about upper GI bleeding and TXA. You won't want to miss this discussion. And first, I have a monologue on several topics, so stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, topic one this week, some final thoughts on the PNAS paper. Well, just as a quick recap, this was a paper that came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and it basically made a bold claim that doctors who are listed as the physician of record in Florida impacted the mortality outcomes of neonates. Specifically, if a black baby had a white doctor listed on that form, they were much more likely to die than if they had a black doctor listed on that form. And that led to a provocative CNN article that claimed that the racial concordance between the baby and the doctor who takes care of that neonate is extremely important for mortality. The effect size was quite large. It was roughly something like this. So it turns out in Florida, they have a one-year infant mortality rate of point. 006, so six tenths of 1%. And that's actually very high. Actually, it's not so good. Um, the rate at which neonates died in this study was four tenths of 1%, two thirds of that, because this was the initial hospitalization. So it doesn't include babies that were rehospitalized later in the year. If a white doctor took care of a white baby, the rate with which the baby would pass away is 0.003, three in a thousand. If a white doctor took care of a black baby, the rate at which the baby would pass away is 0.009, maybe three times that. If a black doctor took care of a black baby, it was 0.004, four tenths of 1%. And if a black doctor took care of a white baby, it was 0.003, three tenths of 1%. So those are the rough numbers. So it basically suggested that concordant race between the doctor and the baby, if the baby were if the baby was black, would reduce mortality by about half, which is a rather dramatic reduction in mortality. One of the points I made on the first podcast was, what is this physician of record? Who is this doctor? There are so many doctors that take care of a baby, particularly a baby that's not doing well. The sicker a baby is, the more doctors likely who will be summoned to provide some care and input in the care of that baby. And this paper was suggesting that if one of those doctors, the one that was listed on the form, was of the same race, there was a nearly 50% reduction in the rate of death. And they'd used hospital fixed effects and physician fixed effects to further bolster that claim. So one of the things I heard on Twitter that rubbed me the wrong way was that folks who are critical of this paper do not fully understand the lived experience of 
underrepresented minorities in healthcare. And I guess I would say that both folks who are supportive of the paper and folks who are critical of the paper, who they themselves are not underrepresented minorities in healthcare, may not fully understand the experiences of underrepresented minorities in healthcare, but they are both open to listening and to learning. But that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the paper is making a substantive causal claim. And the fact that somebody would want to convert a discussion about causality into a discussion about whether or not someone's heart is in the right place, that does irritate me. I think it is just a distraction. This is a scientific pursuit. We're asking a very technical causal claim if this is true or not. In pursuit of that causal claim, it would be important to know what physician of record is. The authors of the study on Twitter were reluctant to divulge information of what physician of record is. However, an intrepid researcher, not me, but somebody who told me, spent a lot of time tracking this down. And this person found out that the physician of record is a special field that is in Florida hospitals that is submitted to the state, and somebody in the hospital has got to write down who is the physician of record. The way in which a hospital decides who that person is, well, that varies hospital to hospital. It's not the same. In some places, it may be the discharging physician, the last doctor to see the patient. In some cases, it may be a unit overseer, somebody who happens to oversee the unit that the baby was taken care of. In other cases, it may be the first or middle doctor that saw the patients. Perhaps multiple doctors saw the patient. There is no standard approach to this form. It's filled out differently in different hospitals. Oh, but there's more to that. Not only is it filled out differently in different hospitals, it's filled out differently baby to baby. There's no, there's no rule that says it must be consistent from child to child. And there's more to that. It's written down on the form after the hospital knows what happened to the baby. So if the baby's passed away, they may think very carefully who they want to put on that form versus a baby who's discharged and doing super well. And it is coded with the race of the mother and the child and the racial makeup of the team who takes care of that baby and child in mind. In short, this is a field that is prone for all sorts of biases. It is possible, one possibility, possibility A, is that if a baby passes away, the hospital may be more inclined to write the name of the doctor with neonatal intensive care unit experience or credentials or, or subfellowship on the form. Now, the paper tries to make the point that um, they looked at whether or not people had pediatric sports education or not. I'm not sure they recognize that NICU is, of course, a subfield of PEDS, so that would not be apparent by that metric. But if, in fact, the hospital is preferentially writing a NICU doctor for babies that pass away, and if NICU doctors have a higher percentage of white physicians than the percentage of white physicians amongst all pediatricians and a lower percentage of black physicians, which, in fact, is the case, which may itself represent some sort of, of bias, um, but it is that way. So this is one clear what potential for bias. The other possibility, of course, is that in the case of the baby's demise, the hospital may preferentially choose to attribute that baby's demise to a very senior physician, somebody who they think can withstand legal scrutiny and perhaps a malpractice suit. That may even take into account the race of the mother and the child, and that may be an unfortunate, insidious form of discrimination. But long story short, is if your exposure variable is like this, 
well, you got a big problem. I mean, you really cannot say, one, you don't even know if these doctors listed on the form actually took care of the baby. Two, they're not being attributed in the same way. And in fact, the person, the persons filling out the form know what happened and may take that and the baby's race and the doctor's race into account when they fill out the form. And there are all sorts of ways in which that might lead to bias that we can't even imagine. Long story short is, when you start with a field like that, that's game over. I don't think your research can even be done. And it certainly doesn't prove what you think it proves, which is that there's something about the interaction between a white doctor and a black family that leads to adverse health outcomes, because that might not be the case. It might be an alternative explanation. Now, again, as I said in the last episode of this podcast, this is not necessary nor sufficient for diversity in healthcare. In fact, diversity is a moral good in and of itself that ought to be pursued. So I don't think that this pertains to that discussion. This is just an analysis of whether or not something is causally the case or not. The last thing I'd say is somebody pointed out to me that believing that one doctor on a team could influence outcomes is not unheard of because there are some studies that show that a person's kindergarten teacher can influence their long-term outcomes. And I said, that's terrific, but there are a few differences here. This is less like a kindergarten teacher influencing the child many years later. It's more like the child in the class influencing the outcome of the kindergarten teacher, and that one good or bad pupil many years later would change the trajectory of the kindergarten teacher's life, because there's just one person on the team affecting the teacher, and there are many kids in class. And in addition... The roster for the class is not written until after the outcomes are determined. And some kids who are attributed to kindergarten teachers never took the class. Now, a popular refrain among economists who do this work is that they believe this would bias to the null. And I concede that under a number of circumstances, incorrectly attributing the physician would bias to the null. However, the circumstances I have outlined, the NICU doctor scenario or the senior physician scenario, that may not be occurring at random. That may actually be taking into account the race of the mother and the child and the hospital's fear of litigation. And so those may all not bias to the null. They may bias precisely in the direction you found a signal. And I guess what I really was baffled at was, you know, somebody pushed me privately, a very smart gentleman, and he wanted me to really articulate a theory that could explain all of the data. And I have not yet satisfied him. I haven't articulated a theory that fully accounts for every variable. And I think this is the sort of disconnect between those of us in medicine and those of us in other fields, particularly economics, where, um, you know, they feel as if the burden is on me to articulate how they got the result they got. And the truth is, I don't even know what they measured. And I spent a great deal of time trying to figure that out. Um, But In my line of work, the burden is on the person making the claim to prove that the claim is true. And ways they could have done that is, one, they could have actually picked a doctor who did the lion's share of the care, or they could pick all the doctors and have different percentages for the percent of racial concordance in the team. That includes both doctors and nurses and all other staff. Sometimes it's a very astute nurse who points out something's wrong with the baby and and gets the baby the urgent look that the baby needs. They could have looked at the racial makeup of that and showed sort of a linear relationship between the percent with which racial concordance existed and, and improved outcomes. I mean, that, that's on them to show. Additionally, if you claim that one doctor is driving the signal, 
You could go the extra step and show me what intermediary endpoints are improved. What is the doctor doing differently that leads to the better outcome? Well, this type of doctor doesn't administer this intervention. And this intervention has a risk reduction that if you multiply by the number of people who are at risk, it actually equals the risk reduction that we see in the overall cohort. That's that's persuasive science. That's what basic scientists do. They show you step-by-step step the mechanism of what's going on. Economists don't do that. They find a signal from a field that is very ambiguous and not very clearly defined. Um, and then they ask the person who's critical of the paper to to disprove the hypothesis, which is, I, I, I disagree with, that's not how, how science proceeds. So this is the last thing I'm going to say about this paper, because I'm going to move on to other things that interest me. But I just want to make it clear that me talking about this paper is solely because one of the things that interests me is whether or not papers prove what they say they prove. That's one of my interests, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. So we're going to switch to another paper that caught my eye. So this week, people were, there was an article published in the BMJ, and it says, time to dispel the two-meter rule for physical distancing. Six feet apart is a myth that is not supported by the best available evidence. Well, great. That's a myth that I wasn't too concerned about because people are just generally keeping their distance. And I don't think anyone is really walking around with two yardsticks taped together. But, you know, I could be wrong. I saw a video of somebody with a pool noodle on his head. But in that article, they also had a table. And this was a, re a table that catches your eye. It says, well, there are green, yellow, and red situations. And those are places that are at risk of low, medium, or high risk of transmission. So if you're silent, indoors, and well-ventilated, that's the green. If you're shouting and singing poorly ventilated in a low occupancy, that's, that's yellow, of course. If it's high occupancy and you're shouting and singing and it's poorly vent ventilated, that's red. But if you're shouting and singing and it's indoors and well-ventilated and high occupancy, well, that's merely yellow. So I saw this. And I thought to myself, this is a plot with colors telling you the increased or reduced risk of catching COVID based on what you're doing. It factors into low and high occupancy, indoors, outdoors, and ventilation, whether you're silent speaking or shouting and singing. And all the colors in the chart, although they do fit common sense, that the closer you are and the more stuffy it is, and the more you shout in someone's face, the more you're likely to get COVID. But when you really get into the nitty-gritty, is it shouting and singing while wearing face coverings, contact for a prolonged time, that's a red if it's indoors, well-ventilated, and high occupancy. But that same behavior, shouting and singing, in a high-occupancy setting, if it's outdoors and well-ventilated, well, that's merely a yellow. And it's a green, in fact, if you're silent, outdoors, well-ventilated, but high occupancy. The more you look at the exact places they're putting the breakpoints, you realize that this graph is a bunch of bullshit. It's just the opinions, literally just the gut feelings of the people who put it together. It's not really science. Because science says when you have three categories, you use some numerical score to estimate risk. In fact, in all these cases, there is a numerical risk estimate, and you could figure that out. Is that easy to do? No, it's not easy to do. It takes a lot of work 
to figure that out. You'll have to do a lot of research. That's why it's called science. That's why you have to do the research before you publish your figure. If people let you publish a color-coded figure that you haven't done any research and it's just based on what your gut feeling is of what a yellow is and what a red is, well, that's bullshit because you're just making things up. And that's what this graph is. And of course, everyone on Twitter who tweets it writes, wonderful article, time to transcend. Many factors play a role. Yeah, that's obvious. All these factors playing a role, that's obvious. But whether or not something is a yellow or a red, which is worse than which? Is it worse to be poorly ventilated but low occupancy and shouting? Or is it better to be high occupancy but just speaking in an indoors and ventilated? Wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. These are things you have to collect data for. You don't get to just make things up. That's the difference between science and just making things up. And this is a graph that makes things up. So the moment I saw it, I realized that I'm confident that the authors of this study don't have data that supports their specific cut points and that this is not really science. It looks science-y. It's science-y, but it's not science. It's bullshit. That's what I realized. I instantly came to that conclusion. And of course, I came to that conclusion because I've been following these infographics and I put out a tweet of many different colors. COVID-19, be informed. COVID-19, what's the risk? And I'll give you one of my favorites. Oh, this was a good one. On a risk of 1 to 10, if you go to a Cardinals game, well, obviously that's a 10. If you're in St. Louis, you go to a Cardinals game. That's a high-risk event for getting COVID. But what about if you just ride on a paddle boat in Forest Park? Well, that's a 4, obviously. If you stand in line for frozen custard, well, that's a 7. But if you go outdoors to a fireworks display, well, that's an 8. That's only one more risky. This is also bullshit. They have no idea that the paddle boating is any more safe than standing in line for frozen custard. If you're wearing a mask and standing six feet apart, or if it's well ventilated, or is it indoor lines? They haven't done any studies to support these numbers, but they're not the only ones. There's one from Texas that has blue, green, yellow. They're all color-coded. They and And, you know, I want to concede that there is a common sense to them. The things at the high high end, somebody with COVID coughing in your mouth. Okay, that's going to be higher than on the low end. Living, living by yourself on the top of a mountain like a monk. Okay, that's low. Yeah, so there's common sense, right? But specifically, what is worse than what? Where you draw cut points, that's what requires science and research. And you know what? If you don't do it, you don't get to publish in the peer review literature and claim you do. That's the simple rules of science. There are lots of questions in science that haven't been answered for a long time. The twin prime conjecture was something they didn't know for a long time in mathematics. But somebody doesn't come along and get to say, well, I, I really do feel it's true. You got to prove it. That's the rules of the game. You got to prove it. So when I saw this graph, I thought it's wonderful that so many people are praising it because all the people praising it and the people who made it don't understand the rules of science. So. I tweeted, politely, as I do, Wowzers, there are so many color-coded COVID activity risk infographics all contain some common sense, sure, but do any use rigorous, reproducible methods to explain the specific cut points and colors used? Hmm, I asked that question. And like all great questions, the answer was no. I mean, I knew that answer, of course, because I had looked at their methods. Um, but many respected people were tweeting. Then David Noonan pointed out, it's a very good narrative review, but this is also an important point. How are the cut points and risk scores determined? I, of course, did not want to waste my time 
asking the authors because I knew, like many authors in the age of COVID, when people put out a pile of bullshit, they're very defensive, and that's the only response you're going to get, which is, well, well, isn't it entirely possible that multi-generational households had somebody fill out the form without a high school education, yet the household had an annual income of 200000 Isn't that possible? No, it's not possible. That's you doubling down on your bullshit study. That's the difference. And so I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, I knew it was going to happen. And in fact, oh, somebody else query the authors. That's what they do. That's called, that's called snitch Twitter. Snitch Twitter is when you report to someone else that somebody is clandestinely pointing out their shortcomings. And snitch Twitter is not appropriate. A snitch tweet don't be a snit. Don't be. Don't be a snitch tweeter. Anyway, they threw it to one of the authors, and and they said, "Well, what do you say about this?" And then I said, "Well, you know, and I just want to clarify. This is a. This is. They're not alone. This is a question we post to everyone." And one of the authors writes back, "That's why we did a qualitative diagram, not a quantitative one. Qualitative in all caps. Why is that such a difficult thing for EBMers to grasp?" Oh, it's a qualitative diagram. Oh, and I'm an EBMer, which, by the way, I'm not because I have nothing to do with EBM. I I have denounced EBM because it is a useless moniker that has overstayed its welcome, and people do not understand where it came from, and they don't understand it existed even before the moniker existed. So I'm not an EBMer. So then I said this, well, good news for people like me who have difficulty grasping things. Dum-dums like me finally got an answer. This is a qualitative diagram that does not use colors to represent consistent numeric cut points. Thanks for the clarification. And, obviously... That's nonsense. And there are still a few people in the world who have sense. So this is one random person on the internet. I'm not trying to be snarky, but I had always thought that if you're talking about quantifiable phenomenon, your descriptions of it are inherently quantitative, even if you use categories rather than numbers, and even if you don't know what the numbers are. Is that wrong? And I said, no. I suffer from that same idea. Somebody else points out, perhaps you're having difficulty because the thing you're struggling with is bullshit. It's the most likely explanation. And that person is spot on. Someone else asked, if you label things low, medium, and high, is that qualitative or quantitative? It turns out that's quantitative. A qualitative, it's not, it's not qualitative. You can't just say qualitative when you couldn't measure something. What's your weight? Well, it's about medium. No, that's not how things work. There's a scale. You got to measure it. Um... What's the mass of an electron? Oh, it's a small thing. You know, you got you to gotta do, do some real work. So I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> I think it says something that we live in a world where, you know, nobody ever wants to admit that they're just making things up. And, um, you know, it's easy to make things up when the things you make up are hand in hand with a, with a popular COVID narrative that, of course shouting in your face without a mask on is worse than sitting by yourself alone. That's easy. But the tough part is stuff in the middle and drawing those cut points. Is it better to sit with two people talking with a mask in a poorly ventilated room or to sing with one other person halfway across the poorly ventilated room without a mask? These are things that, you know, you have to collect data for to really tease that out, to figure out where the cut points are, to make your figure. Now, Instead of that, they just put out a figure that they just made up colors and they got lots of retweets and likes, which is what happens when the people who read science articles don't have any idea how to read the science article, which is a very sober commentary about the lousy state of COVID research. It's a disaster. 
Um, and uh, <laughs> it's thought that this was really sort of um, perfect color-coded guide to bullshit. And I thought that uh, they just made it up. I mean, <laughs> I can <laughs> I can make it up too. We can all come up with lots of publications if we just make things up. And so, you know, you want to make things up? Fine, make things up. But um, there's still there's still like three people in the world who will know <laughs> that that's nonsense. <laughs> all right, on that note, we go to one more topic. So there was this researcher who, I don't know, got some promotion and moved from one place to the other. And I don't know who the hell this person is. And I frankly don't care. But the way the university gave this person the, the, the announcement, they said something like, well, congratulations to Dr. So-and-so. Dr. So-and-so worked here 28 years and published over 1,400 papers. And I did a quick check of Dr. So-and-so, and that fact is actually true. Dr. So-and-so has published 1,400 papers in 28 years working there. And Dr. So-and-so, of course, couldn't be publishing at that brisk pace from the outset. Dr. So-and-so worked his way to that. And in one year, Dr. So-and-so published 120 peer-reviewed pieces in the literature. That was Dr. So-and-so's peak year. So I just quote-tweeted that and said, congratulations. 28 years and 1,400 papers, that's 50 papers a year, one a week. Hmm, that's all I said. Hmm, H-M-M-M-M-M. Hmm, well, of course, many people realize that it is highly implausible that anybody, no matter how good or talented, could publish so many papers. And so there are a lot of, frankly, rough comments in that thread. I don't know what brought it on, but some re- some other researchers thought that this person probably not doing a whole heck of a lot on all of those papers. Then, of course, there were the people who defended this person, said, I worked with this person. I worked with this person. In fact, they trained me to do research. And when we worked on that research project, this person was really committed to that research project, spent a lot of time working on it. Well, unfortunately, if this person was such a good research mentor, he failed to teach you elementary logic because just because the one paper that you worked on him with, he was diligent does not prove he was diligent on all 1,399 papers. You see, you've only proved diligence for one paper. You have to prove diligence for all papers. And the fact is, you can't, because it's ludicrous. In fact, this person was also highlighted in the supplement of a paper called Thousands of Scientists Publish a Paper Every Five Days. It came out in Nature. And it's a very simple inclusion criteria. They take all the scientists out there who are publishing a truckload of papers. They subtract letters to the editors and they subtract editorials. They only pick the real original articles and they divide that by how long the person has been publishing to get a sense. And there are a lot of people like this person who are publishing a paper every five days. No, not a commentary. No, not a letter to the editor but an original article, a big piece of scholarship. And of course, obviously the person is middle author on many, many, many of these papers. But the fact is, you can't. (laughs) I mean, you can say whatever you want. This could be a very good person. I'm sure this person has mentored this person and did in fact check that box, like did a good job on that one paper. But again, elementary logic is if you want to disprove the claim that this person is publishing at a rate that no human being could legitimately publish it, saying that they worked really hard on one paper does not disprove the claim. And if you think it does, you don't understand how to make arguments because that is not the case. And in the course of that research, it was clearly the case that you did not apprehend how to make arguments because that's not the case. You have to prove that this person made substantive contributions to all of the articles to make the case that the rate 
is consistent with what a human can do, but it's not consistent with what a human can do because a human being can't do an original article a week. And then somebody else said, well, you know, this person could have had a statistician and a methodologist and have, you know, a team assembled and built the team. Yeah, you can do all that, but you shouldn't put your name on everything because you can't really do it. Oh boy. And, um, and then, and then somebody in the comments was like, well, you've published a lot, but of course, again, person doesn't want to actually do two steps. They just went to Google Scholar and looked at how many things were there. But of course that includes a lot of letters to the editor and a lot of rant commentaries, which is my MO rant a commentary and write it up thousand words. That takes not that much time. I'll be honest with you. That's not an original article. That's not actually research. That's just a rantorial. And if you subtract all those and the real number is really, really low and it's not even close to that. Um, that's one, two, even in my peak year, including all the rantorials and letters to the editor, it's like one third of what this guy is doing. Um, so it's not the case. And then the other point could be, you could actually look at any of these articles and see how few authors we have. We just generally have between two and four authors on all the papers that I'm a co-author of, of which I'm proud of all, but like four papers, there are four papers on there that I wish I could take my name. Maybe I should take my name off. I see that's a thing nowadays. There are four papers on there. I should take my name off. One that I was roped into as a trainee and I didn't want to do, and I should have just asked them to just delete me from it. It's an embarrassment. Um, but the rest of them are things that I actually did contribute to. And uh, you'll know that because the points of view expressed in the articles are points of view that only one person in oncology consistently argues and makes. So that's not even in question. But the person in this case was egregious an egregious offender and why is it a problem i mean it, that somebody is you know um how can i put it let's not talk about this person let's talk about in general why would it be a problem that somebody puts their name on articles that they do not make substantive contributions to why would that be a problem in general well it's a problem in a lot of ways one one it sends a really shitty signal to trainees I mean, look at the way the signal they're sending it when this person is leaving. Congratulations, 1,400 articles in 28 years. The signal being sent is like, oh, what it means to have a good career and get promoted is to write a ton of garbage. You know, it, to put your name on lots and lots of articles, that's, what, that's a mark of a good career. That's not a mark of a good career. Don't, tell, don't teach people that. Putting, that's, not, that's the thing to be proud of. How about the three of those articles actually made a difference? That's something to be proud of. But just put your name on a lot of articles. Don't perpetuate that myth. Two... It's literally an arms race. Now everyone else has got to work all that harder to get to whatever the next rung on the ladder is, assistant, associate, professor. I'm not sure those things really matter a whole heck of a lot, but, you know, some people do value that. And it, 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 if you want to compete fairly, you got to have a system where everyone's on the same playing field and putting your name on things that you made very minimal contribution to, um, that creates an unfair playing field. And then everyone has to play that game. And that game leads to where we are right now, where you have a ton of COVID articles, and many of them are total garbage. Um, and people are opportunistically shifting into the COVID research doing garbage articles. And um, that's what we have right now. So it sends a bag of signal. Uh, it's nothing to be proud of. In fact, it, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, just be middle author, middle author, middle author on all these kind of cookie cutter cookie cutter, 
um, you know, we ran a trial and then we're going to slice and dice the data salami slice it every which way kind of papers. Um, and then a few papers that the highly cited ones where it's like, you know, guidelines on how should you prescribe commonly used classes of medications, which are of course going to just reap citations and, and distort citation indices. Oh, that's another thing. Somebody defending this person was like, well, this person's H index is really high. So these aren't fluff articles. And I was like, come on, that doesn't prove anything. These are articles. Some of them are guidelines articles. Guidelines articles get cited a lot. In fact, retracted articles, some of which have been massively cited and contradicted and refuted articles have been massively cited. It doesn't prove that the article is good or useful. And that's not the claim here. The claim isn't that some of this work is good or useful. The claim is that it's more than plausible that a person could produce that many original articles. And in fact, it's not even just my feeling. I found this person's name was actually on the supplement of thousands of scientists publish a paper every five days, which has a supplement of all the scientists that met their inclusion criteria. So that's it. That's why I said, hmm. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Look, I mean, I can't take responsibility for every one of my friends, you know, if you told me everything that they did. But, you know, you don't have to defend somebody when they're doing something that's just clearly nonsense. And if they are training you to be a researcher, surely they should teach you elementary logic, which is that simply because one person did a lot of work in one paper that you have knowledge of does not show that that person did equal amounts of work in 120 papers in an annum that you, many of which you don't know. And the truth is, People don't read 120 papers a year. People don't read in that many papers a year, let alone writing them. No one is writing that many papers a year. They're not reading that many papers a year. So there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. I guess then I think the last thing I'd say about this is like, um, why did I feel then, you know, somebody, one of my friends was like, why are you, why are you, why are you commenting? And I was like, yeah, I probably, probably shouldn't have commented. And my general rule is, of course, you know, um, you know, fight the, fight the issue, but don't, you know, don't pick on any one person. But I was like, but boy, did they bait me with their, with their tweet where they had to like really rub it in everyone's face that this person's publishing all these articles and, and they don't want us to think the obvious, which is like, really, really? Um, they don't want us to think that. And I guess why it really bothers me is that like, this is why, I mean, academic medicine is just, um, you know, really garbage. I mean, it really is because like you've created a space where, um, you know, trying to actually get people to debate an issue that's dead. I listened to so many discussions of Adora, of Javelin 100, and the, the quality of the discussion is just totally abysmal. The number of people who have anything original to say about any drug trial is few and far between. The number of regurgitated drug industry talking points being said in some of these discussions by very noted academics is through the roof. That's the state of the science we're in. Just decrepit, poor critical thinking, poor understanding of statistics, teaching people things that don't matter like Krebs cycle and flexor extensor digitorum, whatever the hell that was. I have even forgotten since I wrote my commentary. That stuff, you know, we're distracting them with the wrong things. We're not teaching them what matters. People are getting these huge, massive, influential KOL sort of status. They don't know how to say anything original about a trial. They're just parroting what the industry says. And then on top of that, you want to hit me one day by saying, and look, let's all celebrate this person who's published 1,400 articles in 28 years, a rate of 50 articles per annum. 
and they're publishing original articles at the pace of one every five days. Let's celebrate them. You know what? Some somebody's gonna have to say that this is a it's a total crock, and this is not what you you know. This is all a big scam. You're incentivizing people who don't look at things novelly, don't say novel things, and produce a ton of things that there's no possibility a human being could meaningfully contribute to all of those things equally, showing all the flaws of academics. And this is what gets rewarded and doing actual good work or work that challenges vested interests, challenges the status quo that's actually courageous or takes some skill and takes some personal risk. That's not getting celebrated. Those people aren't getting promoted to executive principal deputy of the world, whatever title that's being garnished on this person. So, I mean, I think it just speaks to just how just how awful how awful the academic enterprise is and how it's an enterprise um, that purportedly cares about knowledge, capital knowledge, um, that really chases a bunch of just empty, empty metrics to give people brass rings and let them control large budgets in, in, in very foolish ways. So on that positive note, on that positive note, we're going to switch to the next two fun parts of the discussion, which is Bashal Gaywali's new paper. And this is the opposite. This is the antidote. Bashal is doing, you know, work that is against the grain and very interesting and is actually substantive and meaningful. And then we're going to talk about a TXA randomized control trial, which is a good randomized control trial. But but like many randomized control trials, how many how many authors should it really have? Question mark, question mark. So on that positive note, we'll turn to Bishal Gaywali. Okay, I'm back with Bishal Gaywali. He's got a new paper out. This is on financial toxicity. Bishal, it's great to see you again. It's great to see you again. So tell us about this paper. So this paper, right now we must be in late August. What date is it? It's August. Uh, it's almost the end of August now. Yeah. Uh, and this has uh, recently been published in the Lancet Hematology. Oh, wonderful. And this is uh, one of my global oncology projects. Uh, you know, uh, we always talk about financial toxicity Yeah. Uh, in high-income countries. If you look at the research on financial toxicity, most of them come from high-income countries, which is quite paradoxical in a sense, because the biggest burden of financial toxicity, I think, is in low- and middle-income countries. Yes. Uh, people who are paying for all these treatments from the pocket. Yes. Uh, no insurance, no access to treatment, uh, all these issues. But, uh, but this paradox is there because... Clinicians in low and middle income countries, they don't have the time and resources to, to collect their experiences into a proper study and, and publish about those findings. Uh, while in the West, uh, only recently, because the cancer drug prices are increasing so much, nowadays we have become more aware of financial toxicity and we're putting more data out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the cost tool for measuring financial toxicity, uh, that was uh, a relatively recent thing. It was, I guess, first published in 2014 is uh, from colleagues in Chicago, uh, which is a validated measure to to assess financial toxicity in U.S. cancer patients. Um, and uh, I had previously done a paper on financial toxicity with my colleagues in Japan, where we looked at uh, financial toxicity among Japanese cancer patients. We thought that Japanese cancer patients might not have financial toxicity because mm. they have public health insurance. Sure. Uh, the government pays for the money. But we were surprised to find that a substantial portion of these patients still had financial toxicity, despite the government paying for them. And uh, this time, this new paper in the Lancet Hematology is about our experience with financial toxicity from Nepal, I see. Uh, my home country. Uh, 
it's a single institution experience uh, 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 from uh, civil service hospital in Kathmandu. Uh, it's the hospital where I was working before I moved to North America, and it's the hospital where one of my very close colleagues, Vishesh uh, Samapaurel, is working. I see. Uh, uh, and uh, this is the this is the study of uh, patients with hematological malignancies, uh-huh. acute leukemias, uh-huh. and uh, the. First, you know, when we decided that we would do a survey of financial toxicity for, for Nepalese patients, the, the first problem we came up across was how do we measure financial toxicity? Right. Right. So this cost tool was developed for U.S. cancer patients. And a lot of the questionnaires, they don't look relevant for Nepalese patients because uh, there are some questions like, uh, you know, mm, how much uh, financial stress are you? I, I, I can't quote the question exactly. Sure, sure, sure. For example, how much financial stress are you experiencing or, or did you have to cut your expenses on, on entertainment for this purpose? And in Nepal, like all of them are experiencing financial burden all the time. Yes. And, uh, yeah, you know, th- these are people who are who are selling their properties for, for cancer treatment. So those type of questions that did not make sense. Yes. Uh, there was one study from Italy from uh, one of my uh, very dear colleagues uh, Francisco Peroni, who I oh, yes. regard highly. Yes. He did a very nice paper uh, from Italy. And in that, uh, they had just used one question item uh, asking, do you feel uh, financial burden? Yes or no. And again, that question would make no sense in, in Nepalese context because everybody would say yes. Yes, uh, I see. So we had to come up with our own definition. And based on our uh, experience of uh, working in Nepal, we thought, uh, we, we, dis- we, we talked among ourselves uh, to decide the three biggest parameters of financial toxicity for Nepalese patients. And the first one was obvious. It was selling, uh, having to sell property. And the second one was having to borrow money, uh, money from someone. I see. And the third one yes. was asking for charity. Uh, and we said, okay, if any, any one of these three things happen, then then the patient has financial toxicity. If two of these three things happen, then it's severe financial toxicity. Mm-hmm. If all of these three things happen, then it's it's extreme financial toxicity. Uh, and, uh, you know, to our surprise, uh, or maybe not exactly, but uh, 100% of the patients experience financial toxicity in our uh, 100% survey. have to borrow money or sell property. Uh, or uh, ask for charity or ask for charity unbelievable yeah. wow so that was that was quite shocking mm-hmm. uh, and it has uh, real consequences uh, for the patients and the the patient's whole family right because if you are selling your house to pay for cancer treatment and uh, you die of cancer then the downstream consequences should be borne by the uh, the remaining members of the family yeah uh, so that was that was quite shocking. And uh, if we look at uh, each of those parameters separately, then 94% had to ask for charity from the public, mm. and 88% had to borrow loans. I see. And 87% had to sell their property. 87%, and, unbelievable! Wow. Yeah, and 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 the thing was, you know, when the, you are borrowing loans, yes, you know, you you borrow loans from people, right? Your friends, relatives, and then we found that, you know, this is again. Uh, not wealthy people. Yeah, and so you know they have, they were paying as much as thirty six percent interest oh per my. year oh. in borrowing this money. Thirty six percent per year. So this was just a, you know price gouging. This was this was 
profiteering from from people's uh, illness and that was quite sad and 73% of of our patients had experienced all three of these you know they had sold their property they had borrowed loans they were they had also asked for charity so 73% of the people in nepal uh, who had acute leukemia they had experienced all three of these which was which was quite shocking at first you know like whenever we talk about global oncology we, we sometimes talk in vague terms without data we say oh people are poor and things like that but you know when we actually did the survey we expected that most of our patients will have financial toxicity that was that was not a surprising finding but what was surprising was 100% of our patients had financial toxicity and 73% of them had to undergo all selling of property borrowing money and and asking for charity hmm. but and, let me ask you a question yeah is it yeah. possible that all of the people who didn't have financial toxicity are people with acute mm-hmm. leukemia who just aren't getting treated they made the choice not to do these things and so they declined treatment is that a possible uh, no no the, i don't think uh, that's uh, a more reasonable explanation i, I guess no, 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 a, but a I, more the, reasonable yeah, yeah yeah a more reasonable explanation could be that our uh, this hospital is a publicly funded hospital i see uh, so people who have money and who not experience financial toxicity Wouldn't go they would here. go to a private hospital or they would go abroad for treatment but, uh, but so that people, is there but are there people in nepal who if they're diagnosed with acute leukemia think i i'm not going to do anything because it's just too expensive to do anything uh yeah the, 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 i would expect they definitely are but they would not be those without financial toxicity right I they see. would be with in fact more financial toxicity I, uh, yeah more uh, vulnerable financially but yeah. yeah i see and uh, you know this is a, this is a simple study this is just a survey but uh, it 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 was eye opening in a number of regards uh, uh, and the best uh, eye opening thing for us was we could actually identify some interventions that might be quite helpful for for addressing this problem first this paper in itself will create some awareness about financial toxicity in nepal because yeah. in nepal nobody talks about financial toxicity right now yeah um, and whenever the government wants to make cancer policy they are always thinking about what infrastructure should we have we don't have a pet scan machine right. should we uh, get a new pet scan machine right. should we get a new radiotherapy machine and things like that but uh, a this study might help us to bring awareness to this topic but more importantly as i said for example a number of patients uh, were borrowing money uh, for treatment 88% of the patients and some of them were paying interest rates as high as 36% so one simple intervention the government could do is it's they could loans. lend money yeah uh, at a, at a cheap interest rate yes and you know and in fact uh, my colleague pishes is uh, trying to work on this about uh, you know uh, uh founding a charity or something of the sort which would provide money at a cheap rate uh to the patients and then once they are cured they could uh get employment and then pay back hmm. uh, some sort of mechanism like that which which is quite simple intervention but uh, it seems to make a, uh, it will hopefully make a, a big difference this is a really great example of how you know even a small study like this is able to come up with sort of a concrete um uh possibility for reform in uh, a nation like Nepal that will probably benefit some people a great deal prevent at least the profiteering on top of of the loan taking 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, we're, we're also actually very grateful to the Lancet Hematology team for giving space to our, our paper because, you know, usually you, you look at global health and global oncology studies and then this usually get relegated to, you know, lower tire journals. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the Lancet Hematology giving space to our paper uh, and uh, uh, the fact that uh, a simple survey in a low and middle income in a low income country like nepal uh, can bring up these possibilities of intervention yes and uh, the simple fact that we need a new definition for financial yes. toxicity that yes. is, that is tailor made to low income countries we cannot be using the same definition from high income countries because that makes no sense yeah. uh, so this should be tailor made for each individual country i think because i don't know in other low income country whether they sell their house or livestock or property right. uh, or whether this borrowing from friends and relatives is a common practice or not i'm not aware so right. i guess uh, the other take home message is that financial toxicity should not be discussed just in vague terms we need some data and science to to intervene um, unless you can measure something you can't uh, know where to intervene or how to intervene yeah uh, so i guess that will be another take home message that we need to um, think about how to measure financial toxicity in each individual country and think about the possible intervention measures when you do that, you might have to have some authors on those papers actually from those countries, unlike uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I, I recently read a very nice uh, satire article uh-huh. about uh, global health. I, I, I'm i sorry, I forgot the name of the author, yeah. but I think it was in uh, BMJ Global Health. Okay. It was a satire about... Uh, uh, the, the author was saying, you know, if you want to be a highly prolific and successful global health researcher, then then you should uh, get grants and write a proposal without discussing with any people from, you know, let's say if you want to do a project in Africa, you just write a grant proposal, get grant, and now you go to Africa. I Once see. your proposal and grant and everything is set, you already have a fixed mind about what you want to do. But now, you know, to just check those boxes, you go to Africa. And then you organize a two-day workshop or a two-week workshop. And then you you ask feedback from all the participants, but you ignore all those feedbacks. Because <laughs> you've already committed to the project. Yeah. 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 And uh, no, the author makes really good points. Uh, I, I, I'm really sorry. I forgot the name of the author. I, I'd love to credit him. But, no, but that's, a, uh, that's an yeah. apt characterization. But um, yeah. I know our time is running out because we just did two recordings back to back and we've been talking for a while <laughs> yeah. and I got to do something else after. Um, so I just want to, I mean, I want to thank you for doing this important work. And I think um, it's very clever. Um, it also really shows that, you know, to document what it means for financial toxicity nation by nation, you have to have a really, I think, close understanding of what people there are facing. And so I commend you both for the method and, and for the result, which I think um is hopefully going to draw attention to an important and and still neglected topic. So thanks for coming on, Bishal. Yeah. It's a pleasure to see you as no, always. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And uh, I'd uh, like to thank uh, the first author of this paper, Vishesh Sharma Powell, especially. He's a very good friend of mine. Uh, we have worked together on multiple projects. And uh, it's it's uh, really great to see uh, our paper uh, getting published and, and uh, to see the work of uh, Vishesh uh, He's trying to change the culture of 
of medical research in Nepal, you usually don't see big papers coming out of our country, yeah. uh, especially in the field of oncology, but uh, he's trying to make a difference. And I'm so glad that we could do this paper together. That's terrific. And and great for the Lancet Hematology to publish it. Um, the New England Journal is probably a little bit too busy publishing <laughs> uh, uh, a, me too, a Me Too Phase 1 oncology trial. They've probably got too many Phase 1 trials they want to publish. So that's a shame. Well, thanks, yeah. Michelle, for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Justine Ryu. Dr. Ryu is a hematology oncology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess, the house of God, and she is a first-year fellow with an interest in classical hematology. Dr. Ryu, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And you're here for, I think this is going to be the third installment of Journal Club with the Trainee. And we have a great paper lined up. This is the HALTED trial. Effects of high-dose 24-hour infusion of transexemic acid on death and thromboembolic events in patients with acute gastrointestinal bleeding, HALTED, an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. This came out in The Lancet. So thanks for picking this article, and thanks for being willing to come on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I was just saying that it feels like there's no quality control here because <laughs> I had messaged you and like the next day we had a time set for recording. <laughs> well, you seem like a trustworthy person and it was a good article. So I said, let's let's just record this. This is going to be good. Um, so you're somebody interested in classical hematology. Yes. And, um, and, uh, and this is an article that caught your attention. So what was it about this article that drew your interest? And maybe give listeners a little bit of background about, you know, what were they trying to answer here? Yeah, so I thought this trial was super interesting because there's been a lot of large randomized controlled trials looking at TXA in multiple different indications. Um, I think most famous ones are like CRASH-2 in 2010 in trauma, um, woman in postpartum hemorrhage in 2017, CRASH-3 uh, in 2019 looking at traumatic brain injuries. And all of them had some sort of uh, benefit in the tranexamic acid group, whether it was in the primary outcome or some sort of a secondary outcome. And none of those large randomized controlled trials, that included like 10 to 20,000 people, um, had any complications in either seizures or uh, increased risk of clotting. Mm -hmm. Then this trial comes along in June of 2020, um, and they're looking at TXA and GI bleeding. And not only is there no benefit at all in the TXA group, but there's an increased risk for both seizure and VTs. So that is what caught your eye, is that um, yeah. it was very different than other studies, uh, although different population, of course. And let's just review real quick. So CRASH-2 was um, tra trauma victims who presented yeah. to the emergency room who were exsanguinating. Is that right? That is correct. And there's a benefit in all-cause mortality. And I think what was also interesting was that there's actually a reduced risk of MI in the TXA group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the one, um, I'm just pulling it up right now just to jog my memory. Okay, so this was 10,000 people randomized. Um, oh, it was a 20,000-person 20, 20, yeah. trial. 10,000, 10,000. All-cause mortality, yeah, this is the one. 14.5% in TXA versus 16%. So 1.5% reduction, but with a with sample size like that, that was statistically significant. Um, right. And and so given that TXA is actually, you know, relatively low priced, um, this was actually cost effective. And that's something that the authors touted. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about CRASH-3. CRASH-3 was the uh, TBI study. 
Yes. So they didn't find any benefit um, in mortality overall between the two groups mm-hmm. in uh, patients who had traumatic brain injury, but they did see some benefit in the people who got TXA early in like the mild to moderate TBI injury. Mm-hmm. And notably, they didn't find a risk of seizures, even though this was TBI. Exactly. And none of these had any risk of uh, venous thromboembolism. Yes, that's a good point. And what about the um, the postpartum hemorrhage study? Um, that was looking at uh, people who were bleeding after uh, delivering birth, and they saw a decrease in death due to bleeding. Uh, death due to bleeding. Um, and um, oh, so this is the trial of um, postpartum hemorrhage. So what was the name of that trial again? It's woman, W-O-M-A-N. Oh, that's an unforgettable name. Okay, the, wo- <laughs> yeah. the woman trial. And that's also a 20, 20K patient study. Yeah, it's a large trial. Massive. And um, uh, death due to bleeding, 1.5% versus 1.9%. P of 0.045. Right there. <laughs> they got it. They got it. It only took 20,000 people. Now, what about the, the death from all causes that was not significantly rec- reduced with 5.3% versus 5.5%? Okay. Oh, it was a combined primary endpoint. Uh, the composite primary endpoint was death from all causes or hysterectomy, of course, which is the final last-ditch effort to salvage uh, a patient who's exsanguinating from, from um, uterine blood loss. Okay. So those are, you know, that sort of set the stage in your mind, which is that we've had a bunch of high-profile, successful yeah. studies of this old, cheap drug. And you and I both know that hematologists, classical hematologists, they like giving this drug. They're recommending it all the time. Love it. And we think that there's like very minimal risk associated with it based on those trials. Right. So no matter what the setting is, you're like, oh, you can give them a gram of TXA. Yeah, you can just toss it on. I mean, that's something that people say a lot. They think it's low risk and potentially high reward or potentially a reward. We leave it at that. Okay. So so then tell us a little bit about this study. So they this in this study they were interested in looking at people with an acute gi bleed um and that's because there was a meta-analysis done in cochrane in 2012 where they took seven randomized controlled trials and they saw that they took the subset of patients who had an upper gi bleed and they saw that there was a reduced risk in mortality um and no increased risk of vts in that case either yes and so this is the cochrane meta-analysis of studies that Almost all of them were sample size less than 200. Small, right. randomized trials. Some of them from like 19 diggity two. I mean, there are some older studies in there. Yeah, there's like, I think the oldest one is from 1973 here. <laughs> That's a vintage study. Um, yeah. And I guess uh, a couple things were provocative. One, that they're saying TXA has an all-cause mortality reduction in the, in the cumulative point estimate. Um, two, it was not small. I mean, the hazard ratio was what? Uh, 0.6. Point six. It was a real deal hazard ratio. In oncology, we'd be popping champagne and we have blockbuster drug, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one of the caveats there, however, is that, and this is something that the I was very surprised that the um, that the current study authors included in their paper halted, which is they made the point that when when pooled meta-analytic estimates of small randomized controlled trials are subsequently compared to large randomized controlled trials, um, they don't always predict the results. And this was first shown, I think, 
if I recall correctly, a study in the late 1990s in New England Journal of Medicine, and they cite a different study, one that I wasn't familiar with, which I think is reference 10 of their publication. They cite a more updated study that looked particularly in, um, I think, perioperative medicine. Uh, let me double check. In Yeah, perioperative medicine. Um, so they're citing a more recent study, um, but I think it's something that has been known to you know people who care about these kind of nerdy evidence-based medicine things, which is you know, when you have a, I mean, a culture of um, small randomized control trials where there may be selective reporting, um, you may not have all the small randomized control trials. Many of them were done in 19 diggity two, where there may have been some types of biases at place in these small randomized trials, and you pool the point estimate. Um, don't be surprised if a larger randomized trial later contradicts that point estimate. Um, and and so that's what led them to launch what they hope to be. And uh, we can talk about if you feel it is that um, the definitive study, which is halt, halt, halted study. Halted, yep. Um, so they took twelve thousand patients and randomly assigned them to either receive um, normal saline or TXA, and yeah. the dose that was given was one gram over ten minutes, and then uh, one twenty-five milligrams per hour over twenty-four hours. I think one thing that I would note here is that it wasn't like they took all um, incoming people with GI bleeds. The clinician had to have substantial uncertainty about whether to use TXA or not. Yeah. So before I, they would even be randomized. Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting thing because that's really sort of puts a lot in the the judgment of the of the clinician. Yeah, and I don't know what the practice is at. UCSF. But I think in Boston, um, so I trained in Boston and for residency and fellowship. And overall, um, when we have somebody who comes in with an acute GI bleed, we don't tend to jump to using TXA. Yeah, similarly, so, we don't. I mean, I guess I can't speak to the practice at UCSF either, because I haven't attended on their hematology service yet. However, in Oregon, I would say that we don't always jump there. I mean, there are other things we do first, of course. And this study was done like all overseas, so I don't really know what their practice of yeah. like using TXA and GI bleeding is. But um, one of the like criteria they had to meet to be in the study was that the clinician had to be substantially uncertain, whatever that may be. Whatever that may really... be, yeah. Exactly. I guess one way we would get a sense of that is if we knew, you know, this is ultimately a randomized control trial with about 10,000 people plus. How many people did they have to screen to get that 10,000? And I don't, I don't know if I recall seeing them say that. They don't say that, and they don't specifically tell us what made people certain or what right. and what made people not so certain. And it excludes people both like people where they feel certain, but also people where they didn't feel certain. And I would love to see like what those two groups looked like. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. People in whom they were like, we're going to give it to them for sure, or we're definitely not going to give it to them. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So so that's the first thing. Um, and and what did they? And what do you think about the dose of TXA they gave? Fair enough. It's a little bit higher than the doses that they used at CRASH and for women. Um, but I think it's doses I have seen. I don't know if you would agree. No, I guess I would I'm say... I'm only a first-year fellow, so... Oh, well, no. I, I guess I would say... I mean, I agree with you that yeah. it... I, I think there it's doses that I have seen. Yes. I think you're, you're absolutely right. There are um, some subtle differences, I think, in the dose with which they gave TXA. But I think it's sort of broadly compatible with practice patterns nationally. Um, okay. So, uh, so, so what else do you think, um, sort of listeners should know about this study and how they designed it? Um, 
So the endpoint that they measured was the primary outcome that they measured was death due to bleeding within five days of randomization. Mm-hmm. I think their initial uh, endpoint was going to be sort of death from all-cause mortality. But mm-hmm. then as they were doing the study, they realized that greater than 50% of the people were dying due to non-bleeding causes. Um, plus, uh, the half-life of TXA is only two hours. So they felt like any sort of bleeding or um, death related to bleeding weeks after giving TXA was not necessarily related to the TXA that was given initially. Right. I think that's 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 really well said. I mean, you capture, I think, what their rationale was for changing the primary endpoint. Um I think it's interesting, of course, because, you know, obviously the reason we're doing anything for somebody who's exsanguinating from upper GI bleed is so that they will be alive rather than dead. Um, and so I think the initial primary endpoint makes a lot of sense to me that we're going to just look at all cause death. But I think as they went along, and this took several years to accrue people, as they went along, they realized that so many of the deaths occurred still very early, but were not being labeled as death due to bleeding. And I guess, right. I don't know, I honestly kind of struggle with that a little bit because we've all seen people crash and die and um it's difficult sometimes to like say is it actually due to blood loss versus what else might have happened um they kind of have a nice figure that shows day by day you know the ratio of like death from bleeding versus not and it kind of makes sense that like first day mostly from bleeding as time goes on mostly not from bleeding um but i guess we're going to come to at the end of the paper it actually doesn't really matter which primary endpoint you take because both had the same result but that that's really sort of a nice explanation of why they switched is there anything else in the methods that you want to talk about before we jump to sort of the results not that i'm aware of but maybe you are aware of <laughs> maybe i mean what did what did i think yeah, I mean, what did you think i guess i'd say i mean I, I thought it was pretty i thought it was pretty fair i mean i think you make a really excellent point which is the point that I hadn't thought of as much about, which was the doctors had to be feel like they were in equipoise. And so potentially we've lost some people we don't know about. And not much is being told about those people. But in terms of who these people were, you know, median, sorry, mean age of about 58, um, more men than women, uh, which is often the case because many of these episodes are secondary to liver disease or variceal bleeding. Um, there's a good chunk, maybe about 45% that thought were variceal bleeding. Um, there's a good chunk that they suspect active bleeding, 80 plus percent. Um, blood pressures were, you know, where you'd expect it, not terrific for somebody who's exsanguinating. Cardiovascular morbidities were sort of kind of what you would expect. It's a global trial. You made that point. I mean, I, I guess I, I don't think that there's much that you didn't point out that is pertinent to this study. Um, I guess we have to give them a lot of praise because, um, actually I didn't, I didn't double check this, but I do think it is the case that their study is bigger than all of the other stuff in Cochrane put together. Um, is that the case that the sample size of this study with 10 K plus is bigger than all of the Cochrane, um, the Cochrane meta-analysis put together? Yes, the Cochrane meta-analysis only had 1,600 people. Total, right, yeah. Right, because it took subsets from each of the small randomized control trials. Right. So, so, I mean, I guess that that makes the point clear that, um, you know, this study is going to be uh, more informative, I think, than the entire pre-existing body of literature. Yeah, definitely. And, okay, why don't we jump to the results? So this is where I think things get interesting. Yeah, so they looked at the outcomes, and there was no difference between the two groups. Um, Almost 
equal number of deaths due to bleeding within five days in the two groups. And then they try to look at it with uh, deaths due to bleeding within 24 hours or um, within 28 days. And there was no difference in either of those uh, groups. Absolutely. So it says 3.7% death due to bleeding within five days for TXA, 3.8% on placebo, risk ratio 0.99, 0.82 to 1.18. Boy, it looks like all-cause mortality in a cancer screening trial, doesn't it? No, it's just absolutely, <laughs> absolutely unchanged. Yeah, but I mean, and and I think one point here that you've, you've hit on, which is worth stressing, which is that um, this is death due to bleeding, which is really the thing you think should be um, improved first and foremost, um, why don't you tell us what they found for just all-cause death, which was the initial primary endpoint? Um, they did. They also didn't see any difference in those two groups. Right. It was absolutely yeah. the same percentage-wise. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then um, is there anything else that jumped out at you at the results? Um, what jumped out to me was that most of the deaths were either in – variceal bleeding or had some sort of liver disease associated with it. Mm. Um, so if you look at the actual, the subgroup analysis, about three-fourths of the deaths were related to variceal or liver disease. Yeah, that's a good point to make. Um, and I guess it speaks to kind of the sad reality of this space, which is the people that you often don't save are the people who are exsanguinating from variceal bleeds. I mean, even though we have great GI docs and they come and they always try to ban things, or at least as often as they can, uh, sometimes you just uh, you just can't save those people. And those tend to be sort of the most common, I think, cause of upper GI leading to death. Um, yeah, and I also feel like it kind of speaks for maybe why there was a negative result in this study. Um, like, so half of the trial population were variceal bleeders, and then they accounted for about three quarters of the deaths. Mm -hmm. So, and when I think about variceal bleeding, it's not necessarily a defect in the coagulation system. It's more of a um, increased portal pressure, some sort of a defect in the anatomy that's causing the bleeding. So fixing the coagulation system might not have as much impact as, you know, doing an actual endoscopy and fixing that variceal bleed. That's a superb point, um, which is that fibrinolysis is not the biggest problem you're facing when you're no. having a variceal bleed, right? And uh, that's a terrific point. I mean, uh, they have, often when you do endoscopy, you see the ripped open varicea just pouring blood. And to think that sort of any molecular therapy is going to stop a hole that big that you can put your finger in is kind of naive. I mean, you need to stop the site of bleeding, right? Um, yeah. And so I guess you're even saying you're making the sort of sound argument that it is not plausible that TXA would really make a measurable difference for variceal bleeding. And that is the principal cause of death in this study, which might be one of the reasons yeah. why the trial was negative. I yeah. guess um, on the flip side, I guess one question is, um, in your center, of all the people who present with upper GI bleed who go to the ED, what is the rate with which it's variceal and other causes? Um, I've been at my center for two months now. <laughs> two minutes. So, okay. but I'm, not, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but I know that BI is a pretty big um, liver, transplant, liver yeah. transplant center. So I'm sure a lot, but I don't have a good number. No, 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 that. that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sort of varied in my experience, but I'm wondering if there's actually a... Let's just take, I'm going to take a minute to just Google real quick to see if I can find it. So you're saying one of the things this paper made you think about was transfusion, um, transfusion yes. papers. So 
The studies that have looked at liberal versus restrictive transfusion strategies for upper GI bleed, one of the theories for why a restrictive transfusion strategy actually worked better in the people with upper GI bleeds was that you were giving them less fluid, so they had less portal pressure, worsening the upper GI bleed. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's a that's a terrific point because um, that may in fact be the case. Um, you know, we paused for a second because I wanted to look up and I found some tables. Um, you know, one table uh, says that among uh, serial people presenting with upper GI bleed, this is a study that says duodenal ulcer, 21%, esophageal varices, 20%, gastric ulcer, 14%, gastritis, 8%, Mallory Weiss, 4%. Um, I, think, I think you're making a fair point, which is that one must interpret the results of this study based on the relative fraction of, of variceal um, disease they had in this study, which was about almost 50% were thought to be suspected variceal bleeding. And then they do say that a good chunk underwent endoscopy. Um, but I don't know if I saw in the paper whether they say at the end after endoscopy, what percent ended up having varices. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure either. Yeah. They only have numbers for suspected. Yeah, suspected. Bleed. That's what I thought. Um, the flip side of the equation, of course, is that um, you're making an excellent point. Like there's reasons to think antifibrinolytic therapy is not going to be a benefit in variceal bleeds for aforementioned physiologic reasons. Um, the flip side of the argument is, of course, that death appears not to be as big a problem in non-variceal bleeding. And therefore, the yeah. ability to detect a signal is going to be really, really hard. Um, yeah. Why don't you take us through some of the side effects of this paper? Because I think this is what really surprised many of us. Yeah, so this was the first study that showed that there was um, increased risk of venous clots Mm. in the group who got TXA. The relative risk was 1.85 with confidence uh, interval 1.15 to 2.98. And then there was also an increased risk of seizure, which has been shown in some studies in the past Mm -hmm. um, with a relative risk of 1.73. And that is really provocative because that is something that we had not seen. And this is, you know, very rare. I mean, it's still rare, but it is almost a doubling in, in DVT risk um, and, and seizure, um, nearly a doubling. Yeah. Um, I guess the question is, I mean, I'm inclined to believe that this is a real signal seen in this study, but I don't yeah. have a terrific explanation for why we see it here and we did not see it in, you know, comparably sized randomized controlled trials. I don't have a great explanation for that. Do you have a great explanation for that? <laughs> um, I think some theories, and yeah. I think the paper points them out that as well, is that there's a lot of patients with liver disease in this population. Again, like I think 40%. And, you know, we were talking about variceal bleeding. And even though for those people, we know that in cirrhotics, even though despite their prolonged INR, PTT, right. they have a tendency to clot. Right. One of the things that gave me pause about the hypothesis that the DVT, the excess venothromboembolism risk, VTE risk here was due to the population was that in CRASH-2, for instance, um, where rates of PE and rates of DVT were identical between both arms, um, the raw number percentages with which it occurred were slightly higher. It was 0.7 and 0.4% for PE and DVT respectively in both arms in crash two, which of course is a trauma population, which is also, you know, for different reasons at high risk of VTE. Um, nonetheless, I mean, I think you make a, a I mean, it, it is possible that the interaction between TXA um, and uh, folks who have underlying liver disease is fundamentally different than it is in other settings. And so that should be considered. 
Yeah, because, you know, from a biological standpoint, there are people with plasminogen deficiency who don't have any plasminogen. So when I think of that, those people are basically getting maximum dose TXA all day, every day. Yes. And they actually don't have an increased risk of VTEs, thromboembolic events. Yes. So that's a nice little, that's a nice little observation. Yeah. Okay. So I think you've done a terrific job of taking us through this paper and putting it alongside um, the prior studies in different settings. Um, what are your takeaway lessons here? How do you incorporate all this together? How do you make sense of all this? So for me, I think that TXA probably does have some sort of an increased VT risk in a subset of population mm -hmm. and is probably not helpful in people in another subset of population, probably those with fair COPs. Yes. So you, if you're called in the middle of the night and they've got somebody bleeding and they ask you, what should I give this patient? Uh, you're going to say blood. You're going to say FFP and you're going to say platelets. And the other thing we didn't point out was in this study, um, it looked like there was nearly no difference at the rate with which products were given. They both received a ton of, you know, they both received products at the same rate. Um, mm -hmm. You're going to say give those things and you're probably going to say not, you're not going to recommend giving TXA in this setting. Not in somebody with cirrhosis and variceal bleed. I mm -hmm. don't think so. Now, what if they came in with uh, probable peptic ulcer disease and peptic ulcer bleed? I think I would consider if they were having trouble controlling the bleed, if they were having recurrent bleeding that was not controlled. Hmm. That's, a good, that's, a, that's, a, that's defensible. I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I would say yeah. that, um, how would I view it? I guess I would say that, I mean, it, it really did sort of take the wind out of my sail about TXA for this entire indication. And I guess I would feel like for that person you're speaking of, um, it's probably a similar situation as the variceal person, which is that I'm not sure TXA is going to make the difference. The difference is, can they clip it? Um, can, um, can they band it? Can, um, can they do the appropriate um, mechanical correction of this, of this bleed? Um, but I think you're making a fair point, and I think a lot of people might um, see, it, see it your way. Uh, for trauma, for postpartum hemorrhage, um, TXA is still going to be a part of, of your toolkit. Yeah, I think that's... Here. One of the things that I what that this study raised in my mind, which I wanted to talk about, was um, that you know I think it stresses the importance of large randomized trials and GIGO, uh, garbage in, garbage out, which is what I think a lot of us say about these small, you know, randomized controlled trials. I guess I would say a couple of things. One. Um, you know, many of these older studies are really, really small. Um, they may have been done in an era where attentiveness to randomized controlled trials was not what it is these days. Um, they may have been done with a different purpose in mind, never meant to be salami sliced and put together in this odd way where you're taking different cohorts of patients. And the data themselves may not have been coded with that intent in mind. And so there may be errors of miscoding. Um, and, and when you do these kind of reviews like Cochrane does, you know, Cochrane, of course, is a terrific meta and that analytic group, although they've been plagued by problems in recent years uh, and internal dispute. Um, but when you do this kind of stuff, um, you should not be surprised if even though all the inputs are randomized trials, the output is something that um, may be quite off the mark. And in this case, I think the authors make it very clear that 
that their study is unable to prove or disprove a small difference in mortality. But what they are certain is that this drug does not work as well as the Cochrane manuscript thinks. There's certainly no way it has a hazard ratio of 0.6. And the reason I guess I think that's so important is that in hematology and oncology broadly, there are still lots of things we do. And if you ask people why they do it, they say, oh, well, there's a meta-analysis. And if you ever start to pull those meta-analyses, it's a meta-analysis of a lot of garbage small studies. And people treat that in their mind as very high-quality evidence. That's, I think, how doctors approach it. But I guess as this study showed, you know, it might not be as high-quality as you would think. Um, what do you think about that? I think that's a really fair point. <laughs> and I think this trial definitely proves that point. Terrific. Um, okay, Dr. Ryu, you did, a, I think, a terrific job of taking us through this paper, Halt It, which I guess has changed both of our management in this space. And we're not going to be as, as exuberant with recommending TXA, particularly when the person exsanguinating is suffering from underlying liver disease. And I'm not going to be exuberant about giving TXA for anybody with upper GI bleeds. Um, and, 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 and readers will have to reach their own conclusions there. Um, and, and I think really sort of the best part about your discussion was putting this in context of the prior studies, Crash 2, Crash 3, um, and Woman, the randomized control trial named Woman, which is now I'm never going to forget <laughs> that that is the <laughs> name of the study. Um, so I guess my question for you is, why classical hematology? What was it about this this space within Hemonc that has got your interest and got your um, got your enthusiasm. I find the topic extremely interesting, but I think in hematology in general, there's like a lot more benign heme problems compared to malignant heme problems. Yet there's a lot more malignant hematologists than there are benign hematologists. So I feel like it's a uh, there's a need for it, and it's some. It's a space where I can serve that need. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point because many of the conditions we deal with in hematology are um, many times, such as DVT, PE, um, thrombotic disorders, uh, they are dealt with by you know, people outside of hematology. Um, and there are so many cases of that. And um, I think the other sort of point that dovetails with that is that just because people call it benign heme, you know, this podcast, we've had this so many discussions with Sven Olsen and, and Joe Schatzel, uh, those troublemakers about whether or not to call it benign heme, which they have called pejorative. Um, and it is a little pejorative when you think about how bad some heme problems can be, uh, such as um, a, such as antiphospholipid syndrome and, and things like that. Um, I think it's it's super interesting in my mind because the biology is interesting. Um, the range of disorders and prevalence of disorders is, as you say, very noteworthy. Um, many times the thing I'm most angry about is that there aren't terrific randomized control trials. But with TXA, you know, you're getting randomized control trials with tens of thousands of people over and over. And so you, you can't complain about that here with antifibrinolytics. Yeah. I also think like the workup in benign heme is a lot more interesting. Oh, you do? <laughs> it's like, you know, with oncology, you biopsy something and you know what it is. But with benign hematology, it takes a little bit more finesse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> since I still have a hat, since I still wear both hats, I feel like, oh, no. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's that's fair enough. You have you have the biopsy. Uh uh, there's, a, th I, I think oncology is quite fascinating in different ways, uh, which yeah. I will, I will save for a future episode of the podcast, but, um, <laughs> okay, this is well done. So this is the Halted study, uh, which is a study I think people should read. It's out in the Lancet and really people should 
take a look at TXA for all these indications um, together. Uh, you know, I looked at its FDA drug label, and I think it's interesting. It's got a drug label for um, menstrual bleeding and for um, hemophilia, which are two things we didn't talk about. But the real use of TXA um, is in these other settings, um, the trauma setting, the TBI setting, the postpartum hemorrhage setting, and now the upper GI bleed setting. Um, so last question for you, Dr. Ryu, is there more information coming on TXA in upper GI bleeding? So there is an ongoing trial right now of randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial called XR-HOSE, um, and, <laughs> and they're specifically looking at TXA in patients with cirrhosis with an upper GI bleed. So I think that will help us clarify the question whether TXA is indeed, you know, does it cause more VTE in patients with cirrhosis or not? Oh, that's terrific. That's great to know about. Yeah. Well, thank you for this uh, fascinating tour in the landscape of TXA. I really appreciate you coming on uh, and doing this now third ever uh, Journal Club with the Trainee. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back for uh, classical hematology topics or any topic you find interesting. I would love to. It's been so much fun. So much better than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what... That's, I, wish, I, I wish that's what most guests said about plenary session, but most feel the opposite way. They regret it, really? regret it intensely, and they wish they hadn't said what they said. But thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it, and no one else. Plenary session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time. <laughs>